Let's continue to worship the Lord together. Let's continue to worship Jesus together with the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. As this glorious promise continues to be the focus for this Sunday morning and a couple of more Sunday mornings, Lord willing. I really believe that we need these words for our lives right now. So Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30. Jesus speaking, he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Pray together. Father, again, I ask in Jesus' name that those of us who really long for and need rest for our souls will respond humbly to this invitation that we have from Jesus, that we really can come to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this was our passage for last week. It will be our passage for this week and a couple of more Sundays, Lord willing. And um, I want to give an illustration for maybe why I want this to be a passage of importance and focus for us in, in these days. I've been reading a book by Hampton Sides. It's called The Kingdom of Ice. And this book recounts the story of a man named Charles DeLong. He captained a, a ship called the USS Jeanette in 1878. They set out from San Francisco with the goal to reach the North Pole. At this time in history, no one had ever been to the North Pole, and it was sort of competitive. You know, who was going to get there first? Maybe it's sort of like the moon landing, right? You know, who's going to reach there first? Well, back in 1878, it was who's going to get to the North Pole first? And so Captain DeLong and his team set out and uh, were on their way to the North Pole when something that you might have thought happened happened. They got stuck. Got north of Alaska heading to the Bering Sea and in September or so the, the, the ice stuck. They, they, were, they were stuck in the ice and y'all they were stuck there for 18 months. Couldn't move. And, and, then, and then the ice melted enough where their boat got back onto water but the crushing of the ice had damaged the ship to the extent that it wasn't really uh, possible to make much progress and even as they inched along refroze Restuck, and then as the ice bore down on them, crushed the ship, they had to abandon the ship and they began to, to walk and knew that they only had a certain amount of time to race south in order to get to safety. And so they set out and they got their crew, a whole lot of guys, and they start walking south and they go for about a week with everything they got because they know the time is short to get to some sort of safety. And Captain DeLong gets out his compass and following it, and then with the old school way of measuring their progress with the stars, he sees his calculations and he says, this can't possibly be right. We have walked for a solid week south, and now we're further north than when we began. How is that possible? And what he realized to his horror is, as they were walking south, they're on a huge block of ice that's gradually floating north. And so as they're walking south, the ice they're actually walking on is floating north. And so for all of their effort, all of their <laughs> arduous trying, 
they were not making any progress. And not only were they not making any progress, they were further back than when they started. And I read that, and I related to it. Because in a spiritual sense, there are times in my life that I feel like I'm trying and I'm working, but I'm just not getting anywhere. Does anybody else ever feel that way? And so you can keep doing what you're doing, which is the definition of insanity, right? To keep doing what you're doing, expecting different results. And that's why we're zeroing in on this promise. Because if you don't go to Jesus, if you keep going to something or someone else, you'll find that it's carrying you further from what you really want, which is life and peace and purpose. And it always moves you away faster than you can work your way to it. The only solid ground, in other words, that's not shifting sand or heading or carrying you north when you're trying to go south is Jesus. Look at these first three words. Come to me. I'm realizing more and more that in my own sinful nature, I resist those three words about to the death, right? There's something in me, and I can't even hardly explain it, but I want to go somewhere else. I want to go to myself, and I want to labor in order to get life and rest. So let's continue to have this promise before us. A few brief reminders from last week's sermon. This is the only place in the four Gospels where Jesus defines what his heart is like. Now, again, I believe in every chapter he demonstrates what his heart is like, but this is the only place where from his own lips he says, this is my heart. And the words he uses again are, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And I think a helpful way for us to understand that is his heart by nature is the exact opposite of your sinful heart by nature. Sin has twisted us to the point that we are anything but lowly and gentle. We are harsh, demanding, selfish, self-centered, and sinful of heart. That's why we have to come to him if we ever find rest. And remember, as the Bible defines it, your heart is the motivational center, the operating center. All of your life comes out of the condition of your, of your heart. It's with the heart that you do all of your thinking, your purposing, your planning, your desiring, your hoping. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. The heart is the real you. And again, the real you is naturally averse to doing what Jesus says to do in this passage. Our sinful inclination is not to go to Christ, but to go away from him. We see that in Genesis 3, right? At the fall, it's God who has to come to them. Praise God Almighty, that is his heart to draw near to you. Trying to live a life apart from God disconnected from him, not submitted to him, is to sentence yourself to unceasing weariness and burdens. And then where we ended last week was when you do come to Jesus and do what he says, you come to him, learn from him, you yoke your life up to his, your heart begins to be shaped in such a way that your heart begins to be more like his. So you know you're maturing in true Christ-likeness when your heart is becoming gentle and lowly. Well, this morning I want to use this passage to allow God to search our hearts and to help us specifically 
on the matter of unrighteous or ungodly anger. That's what I want us to talk about this morning is getting to the heart of of anger. I've been reading through the Bible this year. It's been amazing to me again and again how frequently the subject of anger comes up. Whether it's Abraham, whether it's Joseph's brothers, whether it's Moses, whether whoever it seems to be that we're reading about or I'm reading about is, is anger. And I think we are living in angry days. So I want us to talk from Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, on the subject of anger. Part of this is pastoral as well. Because I see few things destroy families, destroy relationships, destroy churches, as much as sinful anger. I mean, just listen to Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Did you hear it? So uh, anger, when it's in the heart, is dangerous if it's harbored. And when you hold on to anger, according to this passage of scripture, what are you doing? You're giving a wide open door to the devil. Now, here's the mission statement of the devil, according to Jesus. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you know what he uses to steal, kill, and destroy? I think more than anything else is anger that rules in the hearts of people. Matthew 5, 21. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have, said to the, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So according to Jesus, anger is significant. I don't think I really need to spend a lot of time convincing you that anger is so very destructive. I don't know about you, but... Um, there are times I just get to the point where I'm a little bit worn down. And uh, I, I was telling a good friend of mine recently, uh, I, I don't think, spiritually speaking, that I was out of gasoline, so to speak, but the warning light was on. Do you know what I mean? Some of you live for the warning light. You won't fill up until you get the warning light on. Uh, the quarter tank is my warning light. That's just how I live. I'm pretty cautious. But... But I had a good friend of mine come to me and say, Brandon, I think you're angry. And you know what I said in my heart? You know what I said? No, I'm not. Compared to other people, I'm not angry. I don't raise my voice very much. And, and, and then here's what happens. Here's, how, here's why we need each other, right? We need a church family. Because people see things in us that other people don't see. And, and then... After I heard this evaluation, the Holy Spirit got involved. Oh, man. And here, here's the good news. Here, here's what I objectively know. But do you notice most all the principles of the Bible are easy or to sort of acknowledge in theory, but then coming to put them in practice? And so, so the Holy Spirit began to get involved in my heart on the basis of this passage. I am gentle and lowly, says the Lord Jesus. And, and I also think that is on the far end of the spectrum of being someone whose heart is angry. Is your heart angry? Jesus' two words that he uses to define his heart are gentle and lowly. If you had two words to use to describe your heart, what would they be? 
I think for many of us, if we were honest, angry would have to be a candidate for the two-word description. In his book, The Heart of Anger, Christopher Ashe says, anger is the drawn sword of human relationships. Anger is evidence that you are weary and heavy laden, right? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I know of few things that are better evidence that you are not yoked to Jesus, not learning from Jesus, than anger in the heart. So let's talk about it together. Scripture, coming near to Jesus, never reveals a problem he's unwilling to heal. So I want to start with this point, number one. Anger is, above all, a heart problem. Sometimes if we're wrestling with anger, we think it's something that has to do with something out there. It's somebody else who's making me react this way, right? So anger is multifaceted. Anger is complex. Quoting Christopher Ash again, some people will look back with deep regret, perhaps for yourself, maybe for someone you love, as you remember the role anger played in destroying a precious relationship. Marriages are broken. Love between parents and children is marred. Friendships are spoiled. Neighborhoods become battlegrounds. Workplaces are torn, torn and whole countries are riven by anger. Some will remember angry words that cannot be unspoken, violent actions that cannot be undone. When the story of destruction and misery is told, anger is often not far away. So again, my issues with anger are not out there. They're in here. We're never going to make progress with sinful anger, any sinful issue really, until we come to terms that it is not the result of someone or something else. Anger is a heart problem and I am responsible for my anger. Give you a couple of principles under this first point. The first one is this, anger reveals what I value and treasure. Anger reveals what's really important to me. You know what's really important to me? Ease and comfort. It's important to me. And when those things are interrupted by, say, a child that should be in bed by now, just talking about where I live, I tend to get irritated. People thinking well of me is important to me. So when my weaknesses get exposed, right? Okay, now it's on. Or, or I expect, or it's important to, to me, that my child be the best And for every other parent around to recognize what a great parent I am. So when my child doesn't get recognized or the award or win first place or is called out at second base or gets put on the bench or isn't appreciated as the world's single greatest child, I get angry. You don't have to go far to see anger revealed, particularly in your own heart, right? So the next time, the next time you get angry, simply ask this. What is it that I value that is being threatened right now? What is it that's so important to me that I really treasure that's being threatened because that's what's causing me to get angry? In other words, when we say we have an anger problem, what we're saying is we really have a worship problem, right? We get angry because our heart is set on the wrong thing. So come to me, all who are weary and and heavy laden. Most of our anger stems from valuing self over Christ and valuing self over others. I like a predictable schedule, so when the traffic snarls up, I get angry. 
friends, if we can understand that in Christ, in Christ, nothing of lasting value can be taken from you. Hebrews 13, 6, I will never leave you or forsake you. Sometimes we get angry because things that can leave or forsake do leave and forsake. We're angry about it. So therefore, if I am a follower of Jesus, I cannot be ruled by ungodly anger. Uh, the, The picture again is that we're coming to Jesus, but then we're also learning from him and being yoked to him. That's good news because Jesus alone can give us a new heart. Friends, you can try all the self-improvement methods you want to try, but they'll always fall short. Because Jesus alone can give you a new heart. Anger is a heart problem, but Jesus alone can help and heal our anger problem. Now, you can go to anger management, and they probably will give you some helpful advice, some helpful counsel. But ultimately, to overcome anger requires a new heart. You know, um, I've, I've heard this before, so I'll use it by way of illustration Be angry and do not sin, right? So it is possible to have righteous anger. We'll talk about this more likely next week. Most of our anger isn't righteous, though, by the way. Anger is like a fire. So so let me put the first picture up on the the screen. Anger is like a fire, and fires can be helpful, right? That looks like a pretty cozy spot, by the way, right? Anybody like to camp out or... Got a fire pit in your backyard and get the fire going and a fire gives light, gives heat, right? You can do really helpful things with fire. Anger can be righteous. Anger can be directed against what's sinfully wrong. Anger can be directed against injustice, against the harm of children, and we can give other examples. So, so fire can be a good thing. Righteous anger can be a good thing, but now the next picture is fire can also be really destructive, right? I mean, unrighteous anger is like a wildfire. It's not helpful. It's only destructive. And only when you are yoked to Jesus is the fire of anger ever going to be used for good and not for harm. Now we've got to do something that's helpful, but it can, be hurt, can hurt a little bit, right? Let's talk, about, let's talk about, second, that the Bible reveals four things that we value that when threatened lead to anger, right? Well, first principle we began with is, uh, one, of the, one of the things we've already established is anger reveals what you really do treasure. So let's talk about four things that if you treasure, if these things are important to you, when these four things are threatened, you will get angry. And the first one is this, control. The desire for control leads to anger. If you want to be in charge of your life and your world, you will regularly be angry. Do you know why? Because you're not. You're not in control. You're not in charge. If you, if you think, man, if everybody would just do what I tell them to do, the world would be better. You've never said that out loud. Has anybody ever thought it? If you want to control your marriage, you want to control your family, control your friends, control your children, and if they'll just do what I tell them to do, control your church, 
Control your co-workers. Control the country. Control what other people do and think. You will be angry. Do you know why you'll be angry? Because you're wanting something you can never really have. Many examples of this in the Bible. I'll just use Nebuchadnezzar. You remember him? Daniel chapter 2, he, he's having dreams and he, he uh, gets all of his wise men together and says, I want you to interpret the dream, but I'm just not going to tell you what's in the dream. So they have to, if they're so wise, they can tell him what he's dreaming and then also interpret it. They tell him that they, they can't do that. Now he's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. It's the mightiest country in the world. And he's used to getting what he wants. He's used to being in control. And when they say, we are not able to do what you ask, Daniel 2.12, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. I mean, this is the person who creates the fiery furnace. You want to talk about a picture of ungodly anger. Or King Saul, when they began to sing about David slaying his tens of thousands after he took down Goliath, the Bible says he was very angry and this saying displeased him. See, he, want, he wants control. After the exile, when they begin to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, Sanballat, who did not want the wall rebuilt, was, Nehemiah 4.1, angry and greatly enraged. Anger results from wanting to be in control. That's one of the things that can be threatened. The next one's closely associated with it, but we'll go on and say it by name too. Second is possessions. If we think we own it, we think we control it. We want things, and when we cannot have them, we get angry. Or if we have something and someone threatens it, we get angry. It's another reason, by the way, to keep your life from the love of money. (laughs) Naboth had a little vineyard, and King Ahab had so very much, 1 Kings chapter 21, And King Ahab comes to Naboth and wants to buy his vineyard. Naboth refused to sell it. And according to the Bible, Ahab went home sullen and angry. There's something in us, and it goes back to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? When we're told we can't have it, it's the one thing we want. You want the new shoes, your new tech gadget, the newest this, the shiniest that. And man, if Amazon doesn't have it in stock, we get angry. Control, possessions. Third, the Bible bears witness to this, sexual intimacy. Or when it's threatened can be a cause of anger. Let's look at Proverbs together. Proverbs chapter 6. There's a lot of reasons that we live in a very angry culture. But friends, one of the reasons we live in an angry culture is because we've made sex out to be a god. So let's get some wisdom for this. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. And I just want to remind you what Jesus says about adultery. In the same way murder and anger, he, he gives a elaboration in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever looks lustfully 
at a woman in his heart commits, you might know the scripture, adultery. So he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. What's being taught here? What's being taught here is that sex and intimacy go together. Here's a biblical principle that our generation has rejected. Sex is never just physical. It's not. That's why God gives the gift of sex to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. And you disconnect the gift from the covenant, you're going to ultimately be weary and heavy laden. So this scripture is telling us so much of the anger in the world is encapsulated right here. Because we think, having made a God out of sex, that it will satisfy. And friends, adultery, pornography, they ruin intimacy. Destroy intimacy. And so you find yourself trapped, (laughs) bowing down to this false god, who, like all false gods, makes promises that aren't kept. Control, possessions, sexual intimacy or sexual desire, you you, um, wouldn't take much effort on your part to see that those three things are deeply linked, right? Sexual desire often plays into controlling and want to possess people. And, And then we get to the fourth one, is reputation. When it really matters to you that people think well of you, you'll become angry if your reputation is threatened. Esther chapter 1, the king. Have you noticed, by the way, all these kings and rulers have anger problems? Why is that? Because they're given the titles of king and ruler, but they can't actually be kings and rulers, right? Nor can you, by the way. A lot of our anger is based on believing we're the king of our own little kingdom, the kingdom of self, and you and I were never made to be kings and queens apart from the Lord. Um, What I was getting at is uh, is the king in Esther chapter 1 says, I want Queen Vashti to come. And when Queen Vashti comes, all they are going to see, she's the most beautiful woman that there is in the kingdom. But remember, Queen Vashti refuses to come. And this king and his big party that he's got going on, he's embarrassed. And it's his reputation. So anger reveals what we treasure. If you, if you treasure control, if you can treasure, uh, treasure possessions, if you treasure sexual desire, if you treasure reputation, anger is inevitable. Well, let's third get to some help. Number three, the yoke of Christ The yoke of Christ leads us out of unrighteous anger. And I think I could say the yoke of Christ alone leads us out of unrighteous anger. Friends, there's a difference between knowing how to cope with your unrighteous anger and being free from unrighteous anger. And only the yoke of Christ can free us from unrighteous anger. So the sin... 
behind all of our anger. And we've talked about what we can treasure, control, possession, sexual desire, reputation. But the sin that's behind all of it is desiring to be God. That's the sin behind all sin. And then we can specifically say it's the sin behind anger. I want to quote from Christopher Ash again. He writes, ever since Satan lured Adam and Eve to take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this is the essential failing that has plagued and defiled the human heart. Here is the serpent's lure. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. It was the possibility of power, the prospect for control, the right to possess, the acquisition of self-importance, and finally, the possibility of eclipsing God that drove that first sinful act, and the same heartbeat has driven sinful acts ever since. I believe with all my heart that is true. The reason we are burdened and weary is we have attempted to take on the burden of being God. And the only person who is unburdened with trying to be God is is God. When we try to be God, you can kind of trick yourself for a little while, but it's just a matter of time that you lack rest. God could create. God could speak. God could speak everything into creation, and at the end of it, he could rest. You try to do that, you'll never rest. Ever rest. Because when God made you, he made you in his image, but he didn't make you God. That's what the fall is, is when we sought dominion over him. See, irony, uh, the irony is anger destroys the very thing you're seeking. give you an example from my own life and so many failures in my life on this one of the things that I really value is being on time I I can't even explain why I guess it's just born this way it's just a thing with me I can I cannot hardly stand being late the thought of somebody waiting on me, I don't know what it is. I, I don't even like to go through drive throughs because people are behind me, right? I, I, I have loved, I'll just tell you, I have loved the self-checkout line in the grocery store. I think it's the greatest thing ever because I can go there and for the most part, nobody, nobody's waiting on me. But what I realize is the reason I don't want anybody waiting on me is because I don't want to wait on anybody. It's a little glimpse into that I want to be in control. And so a few years ago, Mary Claire and Abel had a piano recital. And I told them approximately a thousand times what time we needed to leave by in order to get there to be on time. The God of my life, be there on time. And I told them also a thousand times that they had to have their piano sheets because they're going to have a recital. You've got to have the music so that they would be able to play it. And when it was time to go and head out the door, guess what? They weren't ready. 
So my level of irritability started to rise, and I began to coax and prod to get them out the door. My, my uh, anger was on the loose. And then I entered that strange realm of constantly looking at the clock, constantly computing the time, distance to go, arrival time, so on and so forth. And I knew that we were cutting it close. I hate this about myself. Just thinking about this. As we were pulling into the parking lot, Abel let out a bit of a gasp. And I said, what is it? And he says, I left my piano notebook at home. Now, I would like to tell you that I handled that moment really well. But I looked at him so angry. I think I'm getting emotional because I can still see his face. And I've raised my voice and I said, son... I told you a thousand times. And I saw my son sort of wilt. Do you know what I mean? It's so foolish when we treasure the wrong thing. It's so foolish when the wrong thing is more important to us than the right thing. Now I'm in a quandary, so I've got to race back to the house, and I always, it's important to me to obey traffic laws. So, <laughs> so we race back. And I didn't say much, and it was just evident to my son that I was angry. And then when he was up there playing the piano, this is how anger, anger kind of makes you insane in the moment, you know what I mean? And I sat there looking at him play the piano. And I said, what was I thinking? So foolish. No, no. In this, in this thing about the Holy Spirit, No, no, no. Let's be specific in your terms. So sinful. Because in my moment of anger, I don't know exactly what Abel was thinking. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't, I really want to be like my dad when I grow up. And this is important. Look with me in verse 28. I want you to read those first three words with me again. Some of us don't do this. We don't come to Jesus 
because we think if we do, he'll act a whole lot more like I was acting in the truck with my son. than how he really is. You know, I think my son would have been so helped in that moment if he had a father who was lowly and gentle. He didn't have a father who was lowly and gentle. He had a father who was harsh and sinful. Has he told us a thousand times? Yeah, he's told us a thousand times. Put that sin away a thousand times. (laughs) And I think part of why we don't come to him, here's here's a burden I want to remove from your shoulders, if I can, by God's grace. I think the heaviest burden we carry is the burden believing he doesn't want us to come to him again. It's fed up, had it, right? There's so many burdens we have to bring to him. And I think that's why in the invitation to come to him, remember it's the one time in all the gospels he reveals his heart. The, the reason he does it here is so you can be assured this is what he's going to be like when you do. Does that make sense? Is he a God of righteous anger? Absolutely. We're going to talk more about that. But he's saying, if you'll come to me, you can learn from me. I want to put one more picture on the screen. That's a, that's a yoke of oxen, right? <laughs> I, had to, I had to kind of do a Google image search because I kind of had an idea, but, you know, this is, the yoke is the uh, device they're holding them together. And part of the blessing of this is to be yoked up, you've got to be pretty close, don't you? I mean, it's pretty amazing when you stop to think about it that Jesus is saying, I'll yoke up with you. I'll go through life with you. Now, when you yoke up, what happens is my understanding is you you typically yoke a weaker ox with a stronger one. And friends, if you can't appreciate how strong Jesus is, see, don't take gentle and lowly to be pushover and passive. That's not what he's saying about his heart. This is where real strength is. He says, now you can learn from me. Where I go, you're going to go. What's important to me will become important to you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I believe that's a statement of contrast. Whatever else you're yoked up to, reputation, control, possessions, ungodly sexual desire, you yoke your life up to that and that burden will not be easy. That burden will not be light. That burden will have no rest. Where's Jesus ultimately going? He's ultimately going to the cross. That's the measure of his love for us. And you can't be yoked up to the crucified Christ without you yourself being crucified to who you used to be. So, control, you get to be yoked up to the one who really is in control. Possessions, you get to be yoked up to the one who in him you have wealth beyond your (laughs) most mature understanding. Sexual desires, 
Listen, there is more to life than what we often settle for. At your right hand, the psalmist says, are pleasures forevermore. As C.S. Lewis says, we tend to be too, too easily pleased. There's so much more that God offers us than what we typically settle for. And reputation, well, you can just be crucified to that. I don't mean it glibly, but you can be crucified to worrying in an ungodly way what everybody thinks about you. I'm going with him. Getting to the heart of anger. Concluding points before we have a time of response. Anger is a heart issue. It is not a circumstances issue. So often we say, well, I wouldn't be so angry if this house was more picked up. If I had more money. If whatever it might be. Anger is not a circumstances issue. And it's not another person issue. Anger is a my own heart issue issue and what anger does is it reveals to us what's valuable to us and you will be ruled by sinful anger so long as you treasure something more than Christ and treasuring Christ above all else is the only lasting freedom from anger is the only way to rest a good place to start is simply drawing near to the Lord and confessing, I have been angry. <laughs> and I want to be helped in learning from Jesus and being yoked to Jesus. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together. As part of our worship service, what we do is have a time of response. And so as we've opened up the scripture and thought about some really important things today, this is the moment that now we invite the Holy Spirit to draw near to us, reveal some things to us so that we're not just hearers of these things, we, we can be doers. So would you bow your heads with me? There's a few ways you might want to apply this is first it might be necessary for someone that's here today to go to someone who has been the recipient of your unrighteous anger and repent. That might be an application from this sermon. Second, it'd be well worth it for your soul for you to take inventory of what it is that makes you angry so that maybe you could see there's an unhealthy treasuring in your heart about something that's going to pass away. And, and then third, perhaps you today need to be reassured that if you come to Jesus, you will find him lowly and gentle of heart. You can learn from him. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Ask your spirit to be at work among us so that we are not a people who are ruled by, governed by, submitted to sinful, ungodly, unrighteous anger. But rather we can be submitted to one who is gentle and lowly of heart, who's not weak, he's as strong as there is. May it be evident in our church, in our homes, 
everywhere that we go, that our hearts are being made more and more like the heart of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.